Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 14. Germany, Japan and Russia. At the start of the 19th century, well over half of all industrial output around the world happened in China and India. In China alone, there was more manufacturing than in the whole of Europe, even after several generations of growth in the Netherlands, England and elsewhere. America, independent for just over two decades, still only accounted at that time for less than 1% of manufactured production. By the end of the 19th century, this picture of industrial production had changed dramatically. 85% of manufacturing by then happened in either Europe, America, Russia or Japan. China and India together accounted for a mere 8%. Why were some societies able to adapt to industrialization ahead of others? Steam engines were the big breakthrough. Invented a bit before the 19th century, it was then that they started to transform the world. Steam trains opened up the possibilities of transcontinental travel. Steamships meant transoceanic trade on an unprecedented scale. Steam was not just important because it powered new transport. The point was that it powered. Steam engines enabled heat to be converted into machine power, and in doing so, allowed the most extraordinary increase in productivity. No longer was the principal source of power the strength of people, or beasts of burden, wind, or the water wheel. People could power things using charcoal and coal, and then oil and gas. If you're a technological determinist, you need to look no further. The application of this new energy source is the key factor in lifting people out of poverty. It was what enabled the most extraordinary gains in output in agriculture, transport, textile production and manufacturing. No matter how good all the other technology, productivity per person cannot rise very far if there isn't enough energy. Until the invention of steam engines and their application, productive processes would have always had to remain low energy. Steam enabled us to rise out of the Malthusian trap by freeing us from what you might call an energy trap. But why was it that some societies proved so much better at adapting to the new technology than others? During the 19th century, industrial know-how spread rapidly from one part of the world to another. Why was it that some societies proved quick to take up the new technology and production techniques? but not others. Why did Germany, for example, adapt to steam technology, but not Turkey? Why was Japan able to copy innovation elsewhere, but not China? Why did Russia begin to industrialize towards the end of the 19th century and into the 20th, but not Africa? Yet again, it's the case of some societies having those key characteristics essential for success. Those societies that adapted to the brave new world were invariably those that were able to overthrow the old feudal orders that had dominated them internally before. In other words, power was dispersed away from an archaic elite and the productive were set free, or at least became more free. Some societies, on the other hand, stayed closed, trying to run things internally and turn their back on outsiders in the new ways. But it was those societies which often ended centuries of isolation 
and chose to open up to trade innovation and new ideas that were the first to take off. It would be hard to think of a place less likely to foster progress at the beginning of the 19th century than Germany. She was not even a single country, but rather a mosaic of princely fiefdoms, cut off from each other by high tolls, tariffs and poor communications. Agricultural workers were tied to the land. Society was divided into status groups, which reserved certain vocations to people born to particular backgrounds. Merchants were awarded trade monopolies, were not allowed to own land. Industrial crafts were the exclusive preserved of trained craftsmen and their apprentices. While the Dutch had overthrown the aristocratic overlords in the 16th century, in Germany, the peasants' wars had left an almost medieval division of society intact with distinct orders, lords, peasant, clergy, merchant, artisans. Early 19th century German was still ruled by an elite who extorted what they could from both peasant and merchant. Trade was constrained by an extraordinary complex array of taxes and tolls. In 1815, for example, there were 38 different tariff systems, as well as thousands of local river tolls, fees and charges. To make matters even worse, much German territory was vulnerable to invasion and big power politics, as her larger neighbours battled it out against Napoleon. Germany was repeatedly invaded in the first 15 years the century. Japan too had been ruled by a feudal oligarchy for centuries. The Diamo, territorial overlords, and samurai, aristocratic warriors. The producers, farmers, artisans and merchants, were subject to extortion as a way of life. An edict of 1649, for example, specifically forbade farmers from eating any rice that they grew, ordering them instead to live off millet and vegetables. The surplus that they produced went to the samurai and the diamo, but the farmers themselves endured a subsistence existence. If Japan, unlike Germany, was less at risk of invasion, what she gained in security she paid for in isolation. Japan was not only cut off from the world, but had rulers that deliberately discouraged any outside influences. For much of the 16th and 17th centuries, Japanese citizens were forbidden from travelling overseas on pain of death. And what little trade did occur, the Dutch were virtually alone in trading with Japan, was tightly controlled. Only those that ruled over Japan were allowed to gain from any interaction with the outside world. As so often, protectionism proved to be a matter of protecting the narrow interests of a few, even if it came at great cost to everyone else. Not surprisingly, living standards in both Germany and Japan in 1800 were virtually unchanged from several centuries before. For Germany, the big shock was the Napoleonic invasion. In the first decade of the 19th century, it caused turmoil and suffering on a barbaric scale. But it also had the effect of sweeping away some of the smaller statelets, and crucially, some of the aristocratic elites, the Junkers, that lived off them. In 1809, Prussia abolished serfdom, freeing labourers to earn money for a living. Landowners lost out, at least in the western part of Germany, if not in the east, where traditional servility continued well into the 20th century. Then in 1834, 
came the German Customs Union, or Zollverein. Its big effect was to sweep away many of the local tariffs and tolls that had inhibited trade across Germany before. Taking away from local feudal overlords their means of extortion proved to be a slow and painful process, and it was only completed with German unification in 1871, when local jurisdictions were simply dissolved. Unification also saw the dissolution of many of the restrictive guilds, which since the Middle Ages had imposed all kinds of constraints on local urban economies. Germany's mosaic of local economies started to merge into a unified economy. Attempts to reimpose constraints on competition and trade failed. Within the German customs union, goods and services could move freely for the first time. At the same time, the laying down of railway lines meant that much better internal communications within the customs union. Economic growth followed. Coal production grew from a few million tonnes in the mid-19th century to 277 million tonnes by 1914, approximately the same level as in England. Germany might have lagged behind England initially, but she led the way with the so-called Second Industrial Revolution, the development of electrics, optics and chemicals. By 1914, she had caught up with, even slightly overtaken Britain, with almost 15% of world manufacturing output. Her scientists and industrialists pioneered new methods of forging steel. Advances in chemistry gave rise to industrial processes that produced dyes, fertilizers and pharmaceuticals. At the outbreak of the First World War, over 90% of industrial chemicals were produced in Germany. Japan's Meiji Restoration of 1868 was a misnomer. It was less a restoration than a revolution. Up until that moment, the Tokugawa clan had for centuries run the country as a collection of fiefdoms. Then they went the way of the Stuarts in England and the Junkers in Germany. Just as it happened in England and Germany, sweeping away the old order meant removing the system of monopolies and trade restraints that had been built up. Feudal fiefdoms were abolished in Japan. No longer the private preserve of the elite, they became prefectures, administered in part locally, in part from the centre. Japanese peasants no longer had to pay 40% of their produce to parasitic samurai, but instead sent taxes to the imperial government. The samurai might have attempted a counter-coup in 1878, when they assassinated one of the chief architects of change, but their days as an elite living at the expense of merchants and peasants were over. Even before the overthrow of the old order, Japan had started to open herself up to outside influences after centuries of self-imposed isolation. In 1868, radical officials who supported the new order opened Japanese ports to foreign trade. In 1871, a delegation was sent to Europe and America to assess how modernity had elevated those societies. They returned full of enthusiasm for reform, and Japan consciously set out to imitate what was seen to have worked in the West. Consequently, Japan began to industrialise and specialise. By 1886, new mills were founded. Between 1886 and 1894, 33 new mills were established, mostly in the Osaka area. By the end of the century, Japanese mills were producing £355 million of yarn. By 1913, production had almost doubled, amounting to a quarter of the world's cotton yarn output. 
Japan was one of the first countries in the world to switch to electrification. To be clear, even at the outbreak of the First World War, Japan was not an industrial titan. Her output was not much greater than Italy's. But significantly, Japan was the first Asian state to begin to catch up with the West. And that was because she was the first Asian state to have the key ingredients needed for intensive growth. It was precisely because Japan was able to adapt, overthrowing the Tokugawa clan, consciously setting out to emulate others, that she was able to retain her independence. Being independent from others is also what kept her free from outsiders. Compare the fate of Japan in the 19th century to virtually every other Asian society. Indonesia had been colonised in the 17th century. Much of India was gobbled up by England in the 18th century. Large parts of Southeast Asia were claimed by France in the 19th. China was divided into different Western spheres of influence. By 1900, aside from Japan, the only countries in Asia not ruled by outsiders were Thailand and Bhutan. Russia did not have a successful revolution in the 19th century. Unlike Prussia or Japan, the old established order remained intact. To be sure, there were some concessions to modernity. Serfdom in a legalistic sense was abolished in Russia as it had been in Prussia, even if in practice vast numbers of peasants remained tied to the landed estates on which they worked. There were moves towards constitutionalism or limiting the authority of the Tsar. But what was more notable is how little changed. Russia had none of the internal changes that Prussia or Japan underwent in the 19th century. While she had started to industrialise, laying down lots of railway, for example, she remained relatively backward and overwhelmingly agrarian. Feudal or semi-feudal constraints remained in place, with consequences that proved catastrophic in the old order. Faced with external pressure during the First World War, agrarian Russia performed disastrously against Germany and Austria, and faced with internal pressure from dissatisfied industrial workers in her large cities, the Tsarist system eventually came crashing down. Precisely because Russia hadn't embarked on the path of overthrowing the old feudal order, opening up to outside influences, she stagnated. She's the exception that proves the rule. Output per person in Russia on the eve of the First World War was little different to what it had been at the end of the 18th century. If Germany and Japan, however, seemed set securely on a path to progress in the early years of the 20th century, they, and indeed Russia, were soon to veer off towards a form of totalitarian dictatorship. Instead of progress, they ended up producing death and destruction on an industrial scale. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress vs. Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.